Picture for just a minute the sky on a clear night and all the stars you can see. Then beyond that, what we can't see, all the suns too far away for our eyes to detect and all their orbiting planets. That number is vast. It's enough to make you feel pretty small. But that's nothing. State lawmakers at least once every 10 years deal with a much more colossal figure. The number of ways they can combine all the bits and pieces of North Carolina together to form an electoral map. That's redistricting. There are more of those combinations than planets in our galaxy. More, in fact, than atoms in the universe. That's true whether it's 14 members of Congress, 120 members of the North Carolina House, or 50 members of the state Senate. Facing all that choice, more options than stars in the sky, and you can get a little lost. But redistricting has to happen. Constitution says so. So where do you start? Well, with a set of rules. And some of those rules, more than others, are meant to be broken. For the News and Observer, this is Monster, a podcast about maps, math, and power in the Tar Heel State. I'm Tyler Dukes. This week's episode, So You Want to Make a Map. Let's get one thing out of the way right up front. Redistricting is supposed to happen every 10 years, right after the decennial census. But it doesn't always work like that in North Carolina. Our state's been central in this fight for power that has sent the legislature, run by Republicans and Democrats alike, back to the literal drawing board every couple of years. And that often means tweaking existing maps. But the last time North Carolina lawmakers embarked on the big, knockdown, drag-out process of redistricting was 2011. That year, Republicans gained majorities in both chambers of the General Assembly. And after a century of Democratic control, the GOP had map-making power. Now let's review some history here. Back to realign the United States Congressional District. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Ladies and gentlemen of the House, here we go again. Senator Mansfield is a paratrooper, and when I look at his district, it looks like the mess that's left on the ground when a paratrooper shoot doesn't open. Minorities have the opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. And we ought to just get on with the game and stop talking. I just want to read from Miller versus Johnson since nobody's taken Use a Ouija board to try to figure out who your congressional representative is. I don't know what to say. I was aghast or shocked or just mad as the devil. We have an expression up my way, don't get mad, get even. Vote for the amendment. That's right around the time a kid from Boone named Nate Fisher started paying attention. Fisher liked politics, geography, and he learned about the redistricting process around the time of the 2012 election, the first midterm that actually used those shiny new political lines. But what hooked him was an app, free, online, and intuitive. It was called Dave's Redistricting App after its programmer. I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure I think my sophomore year of high school was when it started for me. As a big old nerd, I was really excited by that, and I started making my own maps. Professional map makers for years had access to expensive software that could slice and dice districts for state legislatures. But after its launch in 2009, this little freeware app that so attracted Nate Fisher was attracting others too. And with that, the doors of redistricting were blown wide open. 
You didn't have to be a high-dollar consultant. You didn't have to be in good with the Democratic or Republican establishment. You could be a high school kid with an internet connection. There are different sort of like little kind of online communities and forums where people talk about redistricting, and that kind of gave me like a certain, I guess you could say, sort of baseline knowledge. What Fisher learned, and what professional mapmakers already knew, is that the enormous power the U.S. Constitution grants state legislatures to draw maps is constrained. And these traditional criteria, these rules, have been hammered out bit by bit in state and federal courts. So a map that works is a map that at least theoretically passes legal muster. Some of those rules are kind of obvious. Districts have to be connected or contiguous. There's a preference in North Carolina not to split counties. For legislative seats, that's actually part of the state constitution. Districts also have to be equal in population. This may seem foundational to our democracy, this idea of one person, one vote. But that concept and the Supreme Court cases that enshrined it only date back to the middle of the 20th century. Until then, legislatures sometimes would just not redraw the lines for local races. As population shifted, the number of people living in districts got more and more out of whack. But a series of Supreme Court cases in the 60s put a stop to that. Well, I would say, Mr. Justice Frankfurter, the main thing we have to think about here is, is voting rights and disparagement and degrading and dilution of those rights uh, all over the United States of America. I grant you that this is a rotten situation that exists in most of the states and that it's destroying the integrity of state government. But the only way to restore that integrity is to carry out voting rights. Redistricting, as we understand it today, means redrawing political lines all the way down to city council and school board races. And one of the immutable rules of that process is equal population. On the congressional level, that means almost exactly equal. North Carolina, that's the case for Congress. As I said, they, they uh, draw the maps so that the population deviation is at an absolute minimum. For the state house and state senate, however, there is more wiggle room. That's Blake Esselstyn, a mapping expert and consultant who this year is working with local governments to help draw district lines for areas like city council and county commission races. But dividing things up equally has consequences. Let's take our congressional delegation, for example. North Carolina this decade will have 14 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. And our population, according to the 2020 census, is about 10.4 million. Divide that by 14 districts, and you've got about 746,000 people in each. You can keep a lot of counties whole, sure. But Wake and Mecklenburg are home to 1.1 million people each. So they've got to be split somehow. And low population counties have to be combined. That means other considerations can take precedent. Think about cities, for example, which sometimes cross county lines. Maybe you want to keep them whole. But one of these criteria is a bit more nebulous. Communities of interest. On a basic level, this makes sense. Politicians are elected to represent communities, not random shapes. And if you value that concept, you might want to avoid breaking up those communities wherever possible. But beyond cities and counties, what is a community? That challenge is what particularly interested Nate Fisher in June, almost a full decade after he first started drawing his own maps. 
One week left to join the great American map up. It's here. Get out there and draw some maps. Draw some fair maps. Draw some unfair maps. This is redistricting. Use your skills. We've got prizes. We've got fame. You can join the Princeton Electoral Innovation Labs map core. It's going to be amazing. Show off your skills in Colorado, Ohio, Florida, Illinois, Wisconsin. The Princeton Gerrymandering Project this year held a contest to pit map makers against each other ahead of the 2021 redistricting cycle. Fisher entered, and he dusted off Dave's redistricting app. He used data from an online platform called Representable, which anyone can use to submit ideas on communities they think should stay intact. So that can be things like school districts, um, that can be like a neighborhood in a city, that could be like a sort of watershed of like a creek. It could even be like a large region, like say for example, like the high country of North Carolina or like the Outer Banks. Where like when Fisher's map had to split counties to keep populations equalized, say across Durham and Wake counties, that input guided his hand. Same with groups like the Lumbee tribe in the southeast, which even though they're a minority, could have more political power as a block. The representative in that district is going to need to address like Lumbee concerns, um, is going to need to listen to like what the Lumbee tribe has to say, um, in a way that maybe isn't the case if it's two districts where it's 5% of the population. And at the age of 24, he won top prize nationally with a congressional map of North Carolina that focused on keeping communities of interest together. So it can be done. Fisher, who works for a nonprofit advocating for North Carolina's LGBTQ residents, is the first to acknowledge that protecting these communities of interest is a choice. Map makers don't have to weigh them. Some don't think they should. But how do you decide which community gets priority? It's a political decision at its core. But there are communities map makers must protect. Exactly how they do that, well, lately, that's gotten a little murkier. More on that after a break. I have the great privilege and the high and personal honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. A little over a half century ago, Lyndon B. Johnson took the podium at the U.S. Capitol and signed into law a measure long awaited by civil rights advocates. He called it a triumph of freedom, and he said the time for injustice had gone. This act flows from a clear and simple wrong. Its only purpose is to right that wrong. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. This law will ensure them the right to vote. The Voting Rights Act promised to do away with decades of poll taxes, literacy tests, and other Jim Crow laws laws Southern Democrats started creating around the turn of the 20th century to block black citizens from voting. But North Carolina Central University law professor Irving Joyner points out that reversing generations of trauma was not an overnight fix. That's the way the law was. So you're talking about now a 60-year period where you had legal disenfranchisement, where people are growing up knowing that, well, the de deck is stacked against me. So not only is the law unfavorable, but if I go out and I buck the system, then my house is going to get burned down. 
I'm going to lose my job. Somebody's going to shoot into my car. Somebody's going to harm my children. Somebody's going to harm uh, other members of uh, my family. Earning that trust back required a Herculean effort, and it required champions, black candidates who would bring people to the polls. Reggie Hawkins, a Charlotte dentist, was the first black candidate for North Carolina governor in 1968. He lost that election, but attorney Henry Fry won his race for state house that year, becoming the first black lawmaker in the state since the late 1800s. And more followed. So there were a large number of African-Americans who decided that we're going to run. And the purpose of our running is to increase the registration of uh, of African-Americans and to show that the times have changed. But Democratic lawmakers in power had other levers to pull to check growing black voting power. They could just redraw the maps. The redistricting process focused on keeping African-Americans out of the electoral process. And it was across the board, whether we're talking about Congress, whether we're talking about the state house, uh, the state Senate, or even local uh, races. The same uh, process was uh, in place. In the mid-1980s, a group of black North Carolina voters challenged some of those maps. And they cited the Voting Rights Act when they argued that districts were created to specifically deny black voters the choice of candidates. The high court agreed. What resulted was the Jingles Test, named for the Supreme Court case that established it. The ruling underscored exactly how the VRA mattered for map making in places where voting was racially polarized. The general principle of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 is that minority populations should be given an opportunity to elect representatives of their choice if certain conditions are met. And those certain conditions have to do with having a sufficiently large and sufficiently concentrated population that tends to vote uh, in a similar manner. The result, voting rights districts, lines specifically drawn to empower minority voters. That often meant black voters specifically. But the country's changing demographics and voting habits are making things a little more complicated these days. There are more racial groups than there used to be. And the the Voting Rights Act was written at a time when it was, uh, to be frank, it was more black and white. Failing to draw VRA districts might land a map in legal hot water. But those districts can also go too far. We'll hear argument now, number 92357, Ruth O. Shaw versus Janet Reno. Uh, Mr. Everett. In 1991, North Carolina's Democratic legislature approved a congressional map that included a single voting rights district in the Northeast, where a black candidate was likely to win. The Republican minority in the legislature, though, wanted two. So did the NAACP. And here's where separating partisanship and race can get tricky. When you draw lines to include more black voters, enough to become an outright majority, that boosts the population of white voters in surrounding districts. Black voters tend to vote Democrat, and when a district gets whiter, it tends to vote more Republican. The GOP at the time acknowledged that its proposal creating two majority-minority districts, these voting rights districts, could actually help the Republican Party pick up more seats, even a majority in North Carolina's 12-member delegation. But black leaders were torn. The NAACP sided with Republicans, 
They thought more black leaders in politics trumped potential partisan fallout. But Democrat Dan Blue, the first and only black state House Speaker in North Carolina's history, was in favor of the map of the single voting rights district. And he dismissed the push for two majority minority districts as a political ploy. The Democrats, though, didn't have the final say. The VRA required the U.S. Department of Justice, then in GOP hands, to pre-clear redistricting plans in many parts of the country, especially the South. The Bush administration's DOJ rejected the Democrats' map and sent it back for a redraw. So Democrats tried again. They drew a second black majority district. But it wasn't quite what state Republicans were pushing for. The brand new 12th district stretched like a thin snake up Interstate 85, its tail in Charlotte and its fangs sunk deep into Durham, 175 miles away. Its odd shape, cutting just so in and out of neighborhoods, walked a tightrope. It virtually ensured two black members of Congress, yes, but it wouldn't give up the majority to the GOP. In 1992, in fact, the map resulted in eight Democrats, just four Republicans. These contorted maps offended Duke Law professor and former military judge Robinson Everett. In 1992, he and a group of Durham friends sued the state in a case that made it all the way, yet again, to the U.S. Supreme Court. We proceed in a sense on the theory that while we are reluctant to use political pornography, and this has been described as political pornography, but really the only way to understand what took place in North Carolina is to look at the evidence thereof. The 12th District bothered Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and she made that concern clear in her questions for the state's attorney. Mr. Powell, can this, this District 12 is a highly irregular shape. I guess you agree with that. Yes, Your Honor. In places only as wide as a highway and stretching virtually the length of the state. Um, do you think that a district such as that could be, in and of itself, uh, some evidence of an invidious intent? Robinson Everett, who died in 2009, was not a Republican. He, in fact, wrote later that the case he brought against North Carolina was one of the few issues that put him and far-right GOP Senator Jesse Helms on the same side. Here's Everett on NewsHour in 1994. The person who was elected from a majority-minority district really goes up with the instructions to think only of the interests of the black constituents uh, and, and ignore the interests of the whites. And by the same token that the, uh, the 10, uh, in our instance, 10 white uh, members of the Congress would have a job description of representing uh, whites rather than blacks. And that is not the situation which is going to produce any constructive action. Uh, I think it tends to radicalize uh, both groups on that premise. But his challenge to the Democratic maps resonated. In an opinion authored by O'Connor, the court found that the VRA doesn't grant total freedom when drawing race-based districts. Justice O'Connor dealt with this, uh, this, 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 this odd shaped district, and you know she concluded in her mind that, well, I don't know what the intent was, but this just looks funky. You know, this looks like it's, uh, you, 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 you've you been conniving uh, in something. And, and, and she got her dandruff up over the way that the district looked. A lot has changed since 1991. The DOJ no longer reviews district maps to ensure they protect minority groups. 
preclearance, as it's called, stopped after a 2013 Supreme Court decision that effectively gutted that section of the VRA. And lately, it's been Republicans whose maps have been overturned by courts for diluting black voting power. But appearances still matter to the high court and to voters. Because there's something about these funky shapes that doesn't quite sit right with most of us. We can tell just by looking that something's off, something monstrous. More on that after a break. tidal wave of terror engulfs the screen as a raging monster from the dawn of creation attacks the world of man. If you want to attack a political opponent's map, there's a tried and true method that traces its roots all the way back to early American history. Draw it as a political cartoon. In 1812, a Federalist newspaper in Massachusetts devoted a quarter of one of its pages to a depiction of a gnarly set of lines signed into law by Governor Elbridge Gerry a Democratic Republican. The map's face was dragon-like, with a set of sharp teeth and a pointed tongue. It had wings and claws. They titled it the Gerrymander, a new species of monster. It wasn't the first time an American political party had drawn lines in its own self-interest. And although the cartoonist was probably using a hard G to evoke Gary's surname, the term stuck. We now use gerrymandering to refer to maps we feel are for one reason or another, unfair. A lot of those unfair maps can be pretty ugly. They have tentacles that dip down into liberal or conservative enclaves, limbs that stretch and wrap around neighborhoods of black or white voters, or sharp points that converge to break a city into splinters. These monstrous shapes can signal two major traits of gerrymandering. Packing, where you consolidate voters into districts they're certain to dominate, or cracking, where you split them up and guarantee they're an extreme minority. Evidence of packing and cracking is often central to racial gerrymandering cases. Does a map concentrate too many black voters in a district or break them up to dilute their voting power? The questions are similar for partisan gerrymandering cases too, just subbing Democrats or Republicans. But what's the opposite of a monstrous district? Turns out that's something you can measure. It's called compactness, and there are dozens of formulas you can use to evaluate just how janky a shape is. Which one's best isn't all that clear, according to Michael Lee. He's a lawyer with the Brennan Center for Justice, a group that's active in the fight for fair maps. And there's still actually a fairly robust debate about, you know, like whether some of those are the best measure, you know, like some of the most standard ones that we use. Um, it turns out that people, they're standard just because they were included in redistricting software. You can, for example, calculate a district's compactness using the ratio of its area and its perimeter squared. That's a Polsby-Popper score, where a circle is the most compact you can be. You can also wrap a theoretical rubber band around a shape and add up all the blank space that doesn't touch. That's called convex hull. Or maybe instead of a rubber band around a district, it's a perfect circle. And the smaller the circle's area, the more compact the shape. Compactness is one of those traditional redistricting criteria a lot of mapmakers still use to evaluate district lines. That includes North Carolina. And it's important to people. 
Dozens of residents brought it up at a recent hearing on how state lawmakers should redistrict this cycle. First and foremost, I want to thank each and every one of y'all for taking your time to being with us this evening. I believe that districts should be drawn in a compact form. Make districts compact. Uh, we want compactness. So that we are don't compact in form. Equal compactness, which a lot of people have talked about. Create maps that are more compact and competitive. Old counties, we should try to make our districts as compact as possible. We ask for compact, competitive districts at all levels of government. And it makes a lot of sense beyond the issue of ugly shapes. A compact district, theoretically, means a voter has a rough idea of the district they're in. And representatives don't have to make a 175-mile drive to get from one constituent to another. But compactness is complicated for North Carolina. We're along a coastline. We've got a mountain range along our western edge. For other states, it's even worse. It may look ugly, but it's, you know, like that is like a function of God, like, you know, putting the Chesapeake Bay through the middle of Maryland, right? Compactness can be a shortcut, a flag that helps us measure the monster, really quantify it. But putting a number on something doesn't necessarily make it more objective. And ranking those numbers doesn't always make it more fair or less gerrymandered. You know, compactness doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. And in fact, in some ways, it's easier with data and technology now to draw, you know, nice looking districts that, you know, actually are wildly skewed in favor of one party or the other. Even figuring out whether a map is gerrymandered in the first place can depend on your definitions. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to define what gerrymandering isn't what it is. That's next week on Monster. Monster is reported and written by me, Tyler Dukes, for the News and Observer. It's produced and edited by Clifton Dowell, with editing and production help from Kathy Clabby and Davin Coburn. Subscribe to the series and catch up on related redistricting content from the NNO team at newsobserver.com monster. And to continue supporting this kind of local in-depth journalism, visit newsobserver.com slash subscribe and consider a digital subscription.